any time. All right, we're going to leave that. Yeah, go for it. I, I, yeah. Well, let's see. Righty, tighty, lefty. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen when Todd's involved. All right. No. One of the things um, I knew this morning that the students were going to lead worship. I didn't quite know what to expect. But I want, to, I want you all to know this is what the scripture means when it says that one generation shall tell another generation about the faithfulness of God. Man, what an incredible thing. I, I, don't miss how amazing it is that you have students who are growing in the Lord and in their gifting and are using it and have the confidence to come stand before you and lead in worship. That is an incredible thing. Yeah. One of the things, as I've been your pastor for six weeks now, I have been blown away by how God is moving in this church. This morning, we're going to have several baptisms and our other services. We have people joining our church each and every week. Over the last year, there have been 65 baptisms. Over 120 people have joined FBC. And I just want to tell you, if you are new, this is an incredible time to, to join in what God is doing here at First Baptist. And so we're just so grateful for what he's doing. I want to remind you also that this Tuesday night, we'll be having Trunk or Treat, and we would love for you to be a part of that. Um, you see, the weather is going to change on Monday, so Tuesday, um, everybody's going to have to have their coats on for Trunk or Treat, all right? So we'd love for you to be here for Trunk or Treat. You never know, when you plan Trunk or Treat, if you're going to need lemonade or hot chocolate. But I think this is going to be a hot chocolate kind of year. But this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, will you turn to Colossians chapter 3? We'll be in verses 1 and 2 this morning. This, the, I also want to tell you that today is a special day in the life of our church. At the conclusion of our message, we'll be celebrating communion, or the Lord's Supper. And I believe that the Lord's Supper is a special and important practice for every follower of Jesus. Here's why. It gives us an intentional moment to stop, quiet our hearts, and to remember what God has done for us in Christ. Do any of y'all ever feel like you're busy? I feel like for the last three months since you called me to be your pastor, life has been nonstop. And we can feel that way sometimes, can't we? That things are just nonstop. When we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, it is a time for us to intentionally stop for a moment and all the busyness of our lives. And remember, God really loves us so much that he sent his son for his body to be broken and his blood poured out that we might be able to taste the love of God on our lips this morning. So, this morning, as we go into our text and look at Colossians 3, 1 through 2, I want it to serve as preliminary thoughts to our Lord's Supper and to look at this and prepare our hearts to slow down. Have you ever heard the phrase that someone is too heavenly minded to do any earthly good? Have you heard that before? C.S. Lewis had heard that phrase and he didn't like it. And so he wrote about it in his book, Mere Christianity. And here's what he said. He said, if you read history, 
you will find that Christians begin the most for the present world are just the ones that thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And that heaven, aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. This is exactly what Paul is getting at in Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Is that we need to be heavenly minded if we want to do earthly good. So let's dive in. But before we do, I want to give you the big idea of the text. Let me give you the big idea of the text. It is this. Heaven should not just be our future destination though I hope heaven is every future destination of everyone in here, but it should be our current motivation of how we think and live right now. Heaven isn't just your future destination, it's your motivation of how you live and think right now. So let's dive into our text this morning. Let's look at verse 1. It says, So if you have been raised with Christ, so if you have been raised with Christ, Let's stop there for a moment. This little key phrase is key to understanding the whole book of Colossians. Paul is using here what is known as gospel logic. Gospel logic. In seminary, Jennifer and I were taking, we took a master's class in logic together, all right? And so it teaches you in logic class, you learn how to argue well, which is great for marriage, right? But you, but you learn about arguments and how arguments are structured and whether they're sound. And we took this class, and it was a great class there in seminary. And what Paul is doing here is making a very clear logic, logical argument. And what he's doing is he's saying, if this is true, then this should happen. If this, then that. It's a very clear logical argument. He's saying, in the book of Colossians, in the first two chapters, he's told us, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. And this is who you are if you are in Christ. Therefore, this is how you should live. So chapters 1 and 2, that's who Jesus is, what he's done, and who you are in Christ. And then chapters 3 through 4 are all about how you should live in light of who he is, what he's done, and who you are in Christ. And so we see a clear turn, verse 1, chapter 3. So if you have been raised with Christ. Well, and I want to kind of explain this gospel logic in this way. And I, you have to go back to days of grammar here to, to stay with me on this, all right? And here's what, I, here's what I want you to know. That the imperatives, y'all remember imperatives from grammar? Some of y'all are like, nope, been a while. Imperatives are these commands when you say, uh, go clean up your room. That is a command, that is an imperative, okay? The imperatives, God's commands, are rooted in the indicatives. Those are the objective things that God has done, all right? So the imperatives of God, the commands of God, are rooted in the indicatives of what God has done, okay? You say, okay, preacher, I kind of get that. What, what do you mean? Well, let me explain. And, and I want you to know this is incredibly important because if you miss this, you're going to end up a thousand miles away from the good news of Jesus, so catch this. 
because Jesus radically gave his life for you, indicative, you are to radically give yourself to others, imperative. Because you are an adopted child of God, indicative, you are to pray to him as father, command. Because Jesus was generous to you, you are to be generous to others. Because Jesus forgave you, you are to forgive others. Do you see the logic? What God has done leads to how we should live. What God has done should lead to how we live. This is called gospel logic. Even in the Ten Commandments, the greatest list of imperatives in all of Scripture, how does it begin? Behold, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. It is a reminder, before we get to the Ten Commandments, of who he is and what he's done, therefore live this way. But here's the thing. If you get these backwards, you're going to end up in a bad place. Let me tell you what it would look like to get this backwards. You would say, I'm going to give my life to others, and I'm going to serve others. Then maybe, just maybe, God will love me. I'm going to give my money away, and then maybe if I give enough money, God will save me. Maybe if I pray to him, then he'll adopt, adopt me and take me as a son or daughter. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to start going to church, and if I do all these religious things, then maybe God will finally be okay with me. You see, if you put the imperatives before the indicatives, you're going to turn the beautiful gospel of grace into merely dead legalism. And so I want you to know this morning that Paul is not telling you these commands in order for you to earn anything. He's giving you these commands because Jesus has earned everything for you. And if you know who you are in Christ, then we are to obey out of knowing what he's done and who we are in him. So that's what we mean by gospel logic. Well, he's going to continue and he's going to say then, so if you have been raised with Christ... Well, the question is, what does it mean to be raised with Christ? Jesus was raised from the dead, but I'm betting none of you have been raised from the dead. At least not physically. So what does Paul mean? He means those who have been raised spiritually. And you have to understand a theological concept to understand this text. And this concept is called the already not yet tension. The already not yet tension. The already not yet tension describes the theological concept that we already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we do not experience the fullness of it yet. It's also how Jesus describes his current, that he's currently reigning, but one day will fully reign. Here's what I mean. Do we have fellowship with God now? Yeah, we do, by the Holy Spirit. But do we have fellowship with God like we're going to have it when we see him face to face? Not yet. So we have it already, but not yet. Are we justified now? Yes. But one day we will stand before God and hear him declare innocent by the blood of Jesus. It's the already and the not yet. And Paul is saying we have been raised with Christ. We've been spiritually raised with Christ. And one day we'll be physically raised with Christ. This is called already and not yet. So Paul's logic goes like this. So if... This is who you are in Christ. You have been raised with Christ spiritually. He's saying, then that means that although you have never been to heaven, you already are a citizen of heaven. You are citizen of a country you have never been to. You are a citizen of heaven. Hear me, child of God, you have citizenship from heaven. 
And this means, what Paul is going to say, is if you've been raised with Christ, that means you are a citizen of heaven, and therefore you should live as if you have the values of heaven. So here's what he's going to say. He's going to say that if you are raised with Christ, then your thinking and living should be shaped by heaven. Okay? If you are raised with Christ, your living and thinking should be shaped by heaven. Because heaven's not just our future destination, it's our current motivation. So he's going to show us how a, being a heavenly citizen should shape how we think and live. So I want to share with you two ways that he's going to tell us that being heavenly minded will change our lives. Two ways being heavenly minded will change our lives. Number one, being heavenly minded will reorient your priorities. It will reorient your priorities. Are your priorities the priorities of heaven? When an ambassador goes out on behalf of an administration, his priorities become the priorities of the administration. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ, which means our priorities are to be heaven's priorities. So if you were to do a priority inventory of your life, what would you find? Are the priorities in your life the priorities of heaven? And what Paul is saying to the Colossians is since you are now part of the heavenly community, since you are now part of the heavenly citizenship, do not merely seek earthly things, but seek things above. Look at verse 1. Seek things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what does it mean to seek the things above? If you seek the things above, it means you will value eternal things more than temporary things. Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought to ask when you're dealing with a difficult situation, how much will this matter in 10,000 years? Well, that'll give you a new perspective, won't it? How much will this matter in 10,000 years? You will value the eternal more than the temporary. This means parents and grandparents. This means we must care far more about our children and grandchildren's spiritual success, whether or not they have a relationship with Jesus and are growing in Jesus, than we care about their academic and athletic success on the field. Now, those things are important. There's, there's not going to be many people here who love sports more than I do. And I want my kids to achieve academically. But brothers and sisters, they can be the star quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, and they can get the scholarship to Harvard. But if they do not know Christ, we have valued the temporary over the eternal. So if we, re, if we seek the things above, it means to let the priorities of heaven actually be the priority in our lives so we value the eternal more than the temporary. Second, it'll change your investment strategy. It'll change your investment strategy. Reorienting your priorities will, will make you make more long-term investments. You see, we can make investments in this life and you hope that as you look at your retirement fund, you hope it's going like this and not like this, right? You want it to do well. But here's what I want you to know. 
The only investments that can last ultimately are those investments made in the kingdom of God. And they will have returns that will keep on giving for all eternity. When you seek the kingdom of God, when you seek things above, you're making investments with your time, with your money, with your resources that you're investing in that will last far beyond your life and will last even far beyond this current world. It will last all the way into the new heavens and new earth. Do you want your life to make a difference? Do you want your life to count? Well, if you do, I want to tell you, make sure you invest in things that last and make sure you make long-term investments that in 10,000 years you are able to say, oh, I am so glad I did that. Would you do the shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child? long-term investment when people get up and they come and they wrangle kids and they teach kids the bible each and every sunday morning they're in their connection groups long-term investment when you choose to to give of your money and resources long-term investment i just want you to know if we will seek the things above that means it'll reorient our priorities and we'll make a different investment strategy And lastly, if we want to reorient our priorities, then we have to let the center of heaven become the center of our lives. The center of heaven become the center of our lives. Who is at the center of heaven? It's Jesus Christ. All of heaven is about Jesus. All of heaven is about Jesus. Now, if you've ever heard the jokes, you think it's all about getting there and playing golf with St. Peter, right? But heaven is about Jesus. It's all centered about him. If you're seeking the things above and the priorities of heaven become your priorities, then what is your life going to be all about? Jesus. And I think when we talk about making Jesus a priority in your life, I think we often think of it as a list. And we say, you know what? Jesus needs to be top on the list of priorities. And he does. But let me give you another way to think about that. Think about how in the center of our solar system is the sun And around the sun, you have planets revolving around the sun, right? Um, If you grew up before, uh, if you went to school before uh, the 2000s, there were nine planets. If you grew up afterwards, there's eight, right? But however many planets there are, they're revolving around the sun. You see... There's a gravitational pull that is holding all of those planets as they center around the sun. And when you have the priority of heaven, when the center of heaven becomes the center of your life, it's not just that Jesus is at the top of your list. Everything else in your life will begin to orbit around him. Your finances will orbit around him. Your parenting strategy your marriage, your job, everything will begin to have a gravitational pull around the Son of God. And so, when you seek the things above, what you are doing is you are letting heaven's priorities become your priorities. That's number one. Secondly, being heavenly-minded will change your perspective. Number two, it will change your perspective. Look at verse 2. He says, seek the things that are above. And number two, the second command imperative is set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So seek from a priority standpoint the things of heaven, but also set your mind on the things above. Paul's calling us to meditate on the things of heaven. 
and let that change our perspective now. You know, in Buddhism, they think about meditation. And in Buddhism, what do you do when you meditate? What are your, what's the goal? To empty yourself, to empty your mind. In Christianity, when we meditate, we aren't emptying ourselves. What we're doing is filling our minds with what? The things of heaven. We are to set our minds on things above. But this is hard for modern people. It's hard for us to set our mind on things above because we are so, this is what we say in Arkansas, so dadgum distracted. We're so dadgum distracted. The BBC came out with a study where they said that the average person spends over four and a half hours a day on their phone. Four and a half hours. They calculated that to be nine years of someone's life on their phone. No wonder we struggle with records of amounts of anxiety and mental and emotional health because we have forgotten how to slow down and to set our mind on things above because often our minds are right here on our screens. That one kind of hurt. I understand. But that's true. I once heard a pastor say before, he said, when I, he goes, when I pray, he goes, he goes, several years back, I started to practice. And he said, before I prayed, I just sat still for 30 seconds. Before I ever said a word, I just pictured in my mind God on his throne. And I just sat there. And he said, it completely changed my prayer life and my perspective on the world. We are to set our minds on the things above. A few years ago, I went to lunch with a young man, and we were studying the book of John together, and we get to this restaurant, and it's one of those where you, you go up and you order at the counter, and, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm ordering, and I'm kind of squinting, I'm looking at it, and I'm saying, I say, man, why do they make this menu so small? Nobody can read it. He looks over at me. He goes, well, I can read it just fine. And I realized for the first time in my life, I had a vision problem. And I went and I scheduled an appointment with an optometrist. I went in and they said, yeah, yes, you do. You, you have astigmatism. You've had it for a while and you've needed glasses for a long time. Then I got glasses and I put them on. And y'all, I had, I had seen things that I had never seen before. I now understood why people wanted their TVs in 4K. Because I could tell the difference. You see, putting on glasses will change how you see things. And what Paul is saying is, one of the ways that the Colossians needed to, what they needed to do was set their mind on things above. And then what they needed to do, he says, is put on your heavenly glasses that are heavenly shaded, that you may view the world from heaven's perspective. If you will set your mind on things above rather than just on earthly things, you will put your heavenly glasses on and it will change the way you see everything. When you remember that Jesus is on the throne, then you can watch the news without being filled with anxiety because we know that we need not just news from the left or news from the right, we need news from above. 
We need to have our hearts reoriented by heaven. And so this morning, I want to remind us that heaven should not just be our future destination, but it should be our current motivation of how we live and think right now. So let's be heavenly minded and let's let heaven reorient our priorities. Let's let heaven change our perspective. Let's put on our heavenly glasses this morning. And when we do, I believe we will do more earthly good than we could have ever dreamed of. Let's bow together. As our men come forward and our band comes up, in just a moment, our servers are going to pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper. If you are a Christian, I want to invite you to take a cup and a piece of bread and hold it until all have received it. Then we'll take it together. This morning, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, normally, we, in the past, have passed out multiple trays, but this morning, there's going to be one tray that comes your way, and go ahead and take a piece of bread and a cup and hold on to it. But as we prepare our hearts for this Lord's Supper, I want to invite you just to quiet your hearts right now and to do what I said a minute ago. Before you pray, before you utter a word, Will you focus upon heaven and the Lord Jesus at the center of heaven? And will you focus right on him this morning? At this time, I want to just remind you of who you are in Christ. I want to remind you as you look at heaven and you see the throne of God there, I want to remind you how the one on the throne feels about you. In Christ, you are loved with an everlasting love. In Christ, you are his adopted son or daughter. In Christ, the one on the throne has forgiven you all of your sins. In Christ, the one on the throne has made you alive and you are born again. Because of the one on the throne, you have been declared innocent by his blood. Because of the one on the throne, you are a friend of God. Because of the one on the throne, you have a future. Not just in this life, but for the next 10,000 years. A future so incredibly bright, you couldn't even grasp it this morning. Because of the one on the throne, you have a home and you have a future there because he has prepared a place for you. And because of the one on the throne, you can have peace this morning in the midst of a world of strife. And because of the one on the throne, I want you to know you are God's new creation masterpiece. And because of the one on the throne, I want you to know this morning, you do not have to fear death 
because the one on the throne defeated death and he is alive and well and he is sitting and he is reigning right there on the throne in heaven. Let us set our minds there this morning. And as we celebrate communion, I want to remind you that as you take the bread and you take the cup, these are visible reminders that these things are true about you because Jesus came and he died for you. His body broken, his blood spilled for you. I pray this morning that God will press that truth into our hearts. Father, help us taste and see that you love us this morning. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Continue to meditate as the men pass out the elements.
Apostle Paul gives us instruction in how we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took bread, and when he gave thanks for it, he broke it. And he says, This is my body, which is for you. Now I want you to think about that image for a moment. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it in two to say this is what is going to happen in just a few days to his disciples of what was going to happen to his body. His body was going to be broken. And I want you to this morning remember that Jesus Christ had his body broken on the cross that you could be made whole. Let us eat in remembrance of our King. Let's eat together. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he's making a contrast. He says, in the old covenant, there was blood that was poured out of 
bulls and goats and the sacrifices were endless and the blood was always spilled but he says in the new covenant my blood is going to be spilled out for you once and for all and if you have my blood that will cover every sin this morning i want you to know if you are in christ his blood has forgiven you every sin let us drink in remembrance of our king And then Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What he's saying is every time you take the Lord's Supper, you just preached a sermon. You proclaim the Lord's death. And I want you all to know, notice what he says, until he comes. You see, the Lord's Supper is not a funeral service. It is a wedding feast. Because we are looking forward to the day where one day in heaven we sit and dine with our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that going to be incredible? And so this morning we will end by celebrating that our King is alive and He is on the throne. I want to invite our worship team back up here with us to conclude our service. At this time,